And welcome back to the Book and Life podcast. I'm here today with an exceptional woman. As I mentioned last week, she is close to 42 released books and she's got a lot more coming. So she is a very prolific author, a woman after my own heart. And I am excited to share this with you because, as you all know, I like finding new authors that have similar you know, skills and similar love for writing as myself. But first, before we dive into this exceptional woman, I will do our usual blurb, which is from Marianne Curley's The Time Guardianship series, and it's book number four. The battle is over, the war is won, the prophecy complete. But life can't just pick up where it left off for Ethan. Struggling to cope with tragic loss, at odds with friends in the guard, he finds himself adrift, jumping at shadows and sensing someone who can't possibly be there. Blaming herself for the goddess Lathena's death, Giselle swears revenge and vilify the immortal's plan for world domination, but Giselle hadn't planned on love, and that leaves her with an unbearable choice. Should she follow her heart or the strings of a goddess short on praise but high on expectation? Who continues to pull her from the grave? As the guard and the order battle through the past and into an impossible future, darkness lurks around every corner. The fight for the world's survival rests with just one. Is it friend or foe? Who stands in the shadows? Just a reminder that the price of freedom by Rosemary Rowan is having a large portion of her royalties donated to the Ukraine crisis. And that book, The Price of Freedom, is part of her Roman British crime series. And her author has also donated, uh, the agent has also donated her commission to uh, the ongoing refugee crisis, as I stated earlier. So now I have the distinct pleasure, and I pray I'm not going to butcher her name, is Catherine Ryan Hyde. Did I get that right? Welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I am notoriously bad for getting people's names wrong. Um, Sometimes it's just the accent. And sometimes it's just that I say it the English way and Americans have like a different way of saying it. So I'm I'm learning the hard way. That way. I'm sorry, what was I'm the last one you asked? I'm sorry, I was just making sure I said your name right. Oh, yeah, but uh, I, I'm sorry, I thought you had another question after that, and I accidentally talked over it. Okay, good. No, yeah, no, no, you're fine. It's kind of an English um, name, so, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's. I think Hyde's not really, like, a last name we see a lot over here, oh, but okay. because I'm Scottish, it might just not be one that I come across over here well, actually, my uh, very mother often. Was Scottish and uh Hyde Ooh. well my mother was English and Scottish and Hyde right. was my mother's uh maiden name and I oh, took it on as a pen name and then ended up changing my name uh legally to it oh wow so, that's incredible yeah yeah and it's always great to meet people that's got connections back to Scotland and Britain because I always feel like sometimes English writers we have a much more attention to detail seeking and an an obsession with originality, and I love seeing that because it gives me an opportunity to speak to people that 
who are not just prolific like myself, but are prolifically searching for constant original content. So it's okay. really it's really lovely to meet someone like you. I know my series that I plotted was supposed to be for 32 books. So to meet someone that's actually managed 42 is sort of like a dream come true, to be honest. Yeah, so, yeah. the one I'm working on that I'm halfway through, sometimes I have to stop and count, but I think it's 45. The one that's my wow. current work in progress, which means that you're right about, I'm, I think you're right about the fact that 42 have been released. So what that shows yeah. is just that there are some releases in between that are in production that you're yeah, not necessarily yeah. seeing, but they're finished. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, I think a lot of the times we maybe miss like books because, you know, the, the process of publishing can take, can either go really, really fast in some cases and in others it can take a, a really long time to make it through so it really depends on sort of the topic and, and and what level of what level the book's at i suppose almost okay. so well, what's I the out, um uh, i put out two a year and i've been doing oh, okay. that for how long have i been doing that probably six seven years at least right and i'm managing you know I tend to yeah. write fast anyway. I'm not yeah. hurrying so I can get out two books a year. But in the past, I would write a book in <clears throat> somewhere in the neighborhood of five months. And I just, wow. I never had a publisher who was willing to publish them that rapidly. Yeah, of course, so. yeah. But that's good, though, like that you're you're achieving that now and you're achieving your own speed now, which is... I always say very important an author should feel comfortable and uh, at ease with what they're, what they're doing and what they're achieving. So I'm, I'm seeing here that your upcoming release is so long Chester Wheeler. Yes. And you've just released dreaming December. of flight. Yeah. Dreaming of flight was May. Yes. And Chester Wheeler is December and that's the usual pattern. One out just before summer. And one out just before the holiday season is how it's been going. Those so. are the best times to release because those are the times everyone's <clears throat> looking for something to read. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I worry that the December one gets a little lost in the holidays. But, you know, my publisher continues to, you know, it. it I don't have one of those publishers who just, uh, you know, puts things on the... Uh, you know, uh, the remainder table, figuratively speaking, yeah. after a season. I mean, they continue to promote them and they continue to make them available. So I don't suppose it's terribly important. No, I think I think you do exceptionally well to release a book at that time of year. And we all sort of feel pressure as authors to get our books out there at a specific time and get all edits done at the same time. And you know, I, it's nice to sort of meet someone who's more relaxed about it and say, well, this is just the process of what I do in my life. And, you know, it, I, I love that uh, sort of attitude that you have towards that. Well, I've been uh, <clears throat> I've been publishing since 1997. Not yeah, writing since 1997, but publishing full length books since 1997. So. I hate to date myself this much, but that's a quarter of a century. And I was not a kid when it is. I got published. 
So um, you do get to a point after 25 years where the process becomes more comfortable. And you understand yeah. it. It's and almost like a routine. Yeah. 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 So why don't you tell us about the first one, um, Dreaming of Flight, and then we'll talk about So Long, Chester Field. Sure. Field. Dreaming of Flight is um, it's about an 11-year-old boy named Stewie who whose parents died when he was really just a baby. He doesn't even remember them. And his grandmother died fairly recently. He's living with his uh, much older sister and a brother with some uh, physical handicaps, challenges. Uh, and he he meets a He's taking care of uh, his grandmother's hens because he's the only one who wanted to keep them. He's obviously feeling very emotional about losing his grandmother and doesn't doesn't really quite know how to. Um, express that in a useful way and yeah. he ends up on his egg route meeting a, a rather prickly older woman um, who reminds him of his grandmother even though she's not really all that outwardly kind and right. they end up forming a kind of an odd friendship now that's a very a classic of my storylines that people of very different ages form of friendship that you you kind of wouldn't expect it's a little bit more complicated yeah. than that it turns out she has some secrets and some trouble in her life that he ends up getting kind of drawn into but um it's definitely character driven it's more on the emotional side and it's really about that kind of search for connection or that search for family yeah. um that I that I think we fall into if those needs aren't provided. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now Chester Wheeler, I, I I'm really looking forward to Chester Wheeler. It's um, it's just one I kind of particularly like. It it has some humorous elements. I mean, it also has a serious story and a serious point. But and it it doesn't have a particularly young person in it like a lot of mine do. It's not really coming of age. It's about a I think a twenty four year old gay man named Lewis who loses his job, loses his partner, and he has this horrible, horrible next door neighbor named Chester Wheeler, really homophobic, really just dismissive and mean and offensive. And he ends up taking on end-of-life care for Chester because he wow. absolutely needs the money. Yeah. And Chester kind of uh, talks him into driving him all the way across the country so that he can have get closure with his ex-wife. And, and it ends up being quite a journey. I don't ever turn Chester into this lovable old curmudgeon. I stay true to the fact that he's a really insufferable guy. But by the time the book is over, I think the reader understands him a little better. Maybe yeah, understands why he's a little like that, more yeah. why he is the way he is. And I think there's a nice evolution of Lewis's character because he realizes that that care that medical caretaking is is his calling. It's it's really something that he is uniquely suited to do. And that he has a talent for, and he learns that by being around somebody like Chester Wheeler, you can learn not to take them personally, not to take them to heart, 
which is very freeing. Because I think we all, yeah, uh, I was going to say, I think we all have difficult people in our lives. We all know what it's like to have to cope with a difficult person. And so I think there's something valuable in watching him just accept this difficult person for exactly who and what he is and not keep getting his strings pulled. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know that myself, like I grew up in, well, I grew up in a hospital and, you know, I was surrounded by difficult people a lot of the time, but it was good because I learned how to understand them. And yeah, growing exactly. up, and I, you, growing up in a cancer ward, you kind of have to accept grief and death. And yeah. when you're the last one standing out of your group of friends, it kind of gives you a very great understanding of mortality. Yeah. And uh, you know where you stand in that and and what that feels like. Yeah. So I feel like your book kind of can connect with those people that are having that crisis of times running really fast by them and being able to kind of help them realize they're not alone in that situation. I I think so. I hope so. Uh, They, my publisher was nice enough to give it a sensitivity reader, which is someone who um, is particularly aware of, of the disabled community. And uh, and she was very excited about it. She she That's loved great. it and said she couldn't wait to share it with her friends, which I thought was absolutely fabulous. Um, yeah, it really is. And and it it, it, it does have the added um, kind of aspect that Lewis, being fairly young, this is really his first brush with the mortality of someone who's been close to him. And it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's kind of a life changing experience for him, but a big part of what he gets out of it, out of the fact that this was a very difficult person he was caring for is he comes to realize that when people tell, when people tell you what they think of you or how they judge you, they're really telling you a lot more about themselves than they're telling you about you. And once you know that, a little bit of the emotional heat over being teased or criticized or bullied or whatever starts to fall away because you just see it as a reflection of the person who's making the comment, not so much a judgment of of you. Exactly, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I generally look forward to my books, but they're, you know, it's people sometimes ask me like your books are kind of like your children, right? So it's impossible to pick a favorite. No, I have some, I like more than others. I mean, I think I had a total commitment to all of them and there are none that I simply put out because I thought, Oh, well, that's good enough. I mean, I give the same to all of them, but they don't, they don't all strike me exactly the same way. Some of them are more closer to my heart or more specific to my liking. And it's interesting to me that sometimes I'll release one that is not my absolute favorite. And yet people who are my regular readers who read everything I do will tell me that one was their absolute favorite. So scary when that happens, isn't it? Well, I think it's kind of nice because it just reminds you that it's more about personal taste than it is about 
quality. Like I say, I put the same effort, the same heart, yep. the same thought, the same everything into every book. But some of them are just more my cup of tea and some of them are more other people's cup of tea. And you never know well, what's going to hit. I like that. Oh, yeah. 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 For for me, like I wrote books I, I knew didn't exist and I wanted to read them and having different walks of life, read them and find them interesting to me was, it was nice, but it, for me, it was, I was showing stories that I knew didn't exist and there was maybe people out there that wanted to read them too, but it was about making a shelf for me so that later on in life I got to read the books when I can't write anymore that I want to read. I have um, idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis, so I know one day I won't be able to write. I know that day will come. And I almost want to have the ability to say to somebody, well, read me that book from the shelf, or if I fancy something that doesn't exist, I can almost ask them to read one of mine. Mm -hmm. And that makes it special to me. Yeah. Because I know that that's me also sharing with them that before I become this sort of lump that they have to take care of, that I have lived a very full life and I have written down some of my my stories. Yeah. There was an author who said, and I unfortunately I don't remember who it was, who said if there's a book that you want to read but it doesn't exist, then you have to write it. I wish yeah. I could remember who that was who said that. I know. I, I, know, I know that saying too. I just can't think of who it was that said it either. But yeah. I had great inspirations growing up. I had Catherine Cookson, who was a dame. She was a leader of her time in period drama and I always read her when I need a kick up the butt go write book and I have ones I go to for when I need comforting because I'm spending time in hospital and I've just I started this podcast as an inclusive podcast for everyone because there is a lot of places that don't like promoting maybe LBGQ authors or authors who are disabled I mean I have had a hell of a time with my dyslexia and being an author with publishers that don't want to work with me because I am dyslexic so I miss a lot of things which would mean that they would have to take on a more responsible role of editing and, and copy copy editing and that's what made me say okay I'm gonna have a podcast where everyone can talk everyone can share their stories And it's a safe, open space. And it doesn't matter if they're a literacy agent, a film producer, an author, or a a writer that's just breaking in. They have that place that they can come on, they can say their story, and they know that they're just going to get love in return. Um, And, you know, from that, I've just, I've had a young chap on, a young um, writer on from the Pride publishing group and uh to be able to support them as they're making that journey was incredibly important to me so you know having you on now is like you know just an extra way of saying this is a completely inclusive environment and 
and it is such an honor to have you on and I love the fact that you do books that have disabled people in them that have people that have extra struggles in life because I for the longest time couldn't find a story where a disabled person wasn't being mocked or used as a used as a way to make the story sad or make the story remain in one place or have a tragic ending and I think with you you offer a much more rounded approach to life and you say hey you know just because you're disabled that doesn't mean that your life stops I did something similar with and this is an older book now but I did yeah. something similar with disability in Take Me With You. That book right. was was set in a couple different time periods. And in the first, the the adult man takes these two boys on a summer trip with him because their their father is in jail. And then years and yeah. years later, and he stays in touch with them. Years later he is mm-hmm. um he has been diagnosed with uh, muscular dystrophy and they, yeah. so he wants to sell his camper, his mo- motorhome. So they buy it and then they take him out and they just make the commitment that they're going to do that every summer. And he says, you know, I might be in a wheelchair by then. And they say, fine, we'll hang the wheelchair on the back of the thing and off we'll go, you know? So there's yeah. just that sense like, okay, fine, you're going to have trouble moving around now, so what? We go forward. We just, we go forward. Yeah, they're paying it forward. We living yeah. a life and we keep doing things together and, you know, things might change a little in terms of how we get you into the camper, but nothing really changes in terms of we go traveling. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's important because I think a lot of people now when they get arthritis or they get kind of into that area of there's a long-term invisible illness that they don't know what it's going to do or when it's going to do it it's so awful because they start to think well my life ends now because I've got this and that could be further from the truth yeah and I keep trying to educate people on that yeah yeah Life is over when it's over, and until then, whatever life throws us, we we Make accept it when we it. can accept it, and and we go on as we can go on, you know. And and one of the things I like about about being a writer, uh, about making my living as an author, is that nothing can real. I mean, short of maybe dementia, which I think I would know by now if I was heading there. I could always do yeah. what I love to do. It it wouldn't really matter. It wouldn't matter what my physical condition was. Um, it wouldn't matter how old I was. I can yeah. still make up stories, you know, and, and so exactly. that that's what matters to me. And that's something that uh, really knows no limitation. So, and for me, yeah. like the, the ultimate dream for me is just to find an agent who can take my stories and my really honest, inclusive stories and run with them and find me a publisher that's safe and open and would be willing to hold on to the great stories that I tell and and, and really give them an opportunity and a chance. 
Um, yeah, That's I've my always, dream. I've always tried to write as inclusively as I can. Not not something that I'm putting on myself, but it's just kind of how I look at the world. I do write a lot of stories that have LGBT plus characters. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of stories that have older characters who are not seen as helpless and worthless and just a burden on somebody else. I'm starting to get older myself now. I turned 67 this year, which is not you know, particularly old. It's not that old. No, it isn't. But I'm starting to become very aware yeah. of how ageist a society we really are. Kind of, yes. kind of uh, shamelessly ageist. Like, like people saying things that are just horrible about older people and, and, not not realizing what they're doing. I see so mm-hmm. many people look at older older members of our government and say, well, they need to get out of there because they're just senile and we need some young people to come in there and who are in touch. Yeah. And I'm I'm like, you know, sometimes I'll actually respond to people on social media and say, you realize what you're saying here is old is bad and young is good, right? Yeah, and I don't, and I don't believe that. I mean, no. yeah, there are things that you lose as you get older, like the ability to not take very good care of yourself and get away with that, and you yeah. know, a certain amount of physical stamina or whatever. And then there's so much that you gain. And yes, there are some older people in Congress or whatever who are doing a very bad job, but it's not because they're older. It's because they're not very good people in my estimation. And to put it on their age, instead of just saying this person is not doing what I want them to do. It's really been kind of a shock to me lately. So I have, I have several books where I have characters who are in their nineties. Actually I have two books where I I have uh, very strong, positive female characters who are women in their nineties who um don't really see anymore yeah. um and that gives them a little bit more of a sense of needing assistance on a day-to-day basis but what they have yep. to give still is huge compared to what yeah. it you know compared to needing someone to help you down to the bank or whatever i mean they just have yeah, they exactly. know so much. They feel so much. They teach so much. So and that's um, what I hope to do as well: teach people to be more open and understanding about disabilities. Like the novel that I'm, I'm currently trying to find a shop for is because I walked away for two years because I got really sick for two years, and I wrote this novel called Ride with Me, and Lorna uses horse, horses to help disabled children open up and find themselves and and find their voices but at the same time she is somebody that takes on so much but doesn't take care of herself so she's got these foster children that she loves and she adores and then her sweetheart that she had when she was in high school what you know he returns home from an accident that's destroyed his life and has turned him upside down and he's looking to heal and it ends up with her realizing that not only is she doing an amazing thing by healing these children and and taking on these foster children and giving them a home and and a family 
but she learns to heal herself. She learns to take the time to heal and be herself. And I thought that was such a powerful book. But it's not, I don't think, a book that a lot of people are looking for. But it is a very powerful book that we need to have at this time when we've all lost people through COVID. We've all been going through a very hellacious time. And I think it's a great way of reminding us to take care of ourselves and to take care of those that are less fortunate, that are going through hell and maybe do need somebody to help them and maybe do need that sort of second chance almost. Um, so it's, it's a pleasure to meet somebody like you who I always like to say touches on similar topics mm. and who believes in similar kind of aspects of life and yeah. and writing. Well, if there's if there's any theme that runs through everything, well, there are probably a couple themes that run through everything I've written. Yeah. One of them is, you know, what is it our responsibility to do for each other? And yeah. what are we willing to do for each other that maybe goes above and beyond what what it would be our basic obligation to do? Yeah. Um, but But also... Everything I write kind of makes the point that however different you think we are, we're all human beings. And if you, if you, and literature to me is just an ideal way to do this. If you can dip down one layer underneath the differences, it's amazing how quickly you will see that there's so much we have in common as human beings, so much more than our little surface differences. I mean, there's a level. So whoever I'm writing about, if I just bring it down to a more emotional level, I mean, humans are are very similar to one another in that we, we all want basically the same things. We want to love and be loved. We want to feel safe. We want our loved ones to be safe. And when you write from that place, whoever I'm writing about, no matter how different you might see them as being, if you met them in real life, you're going to recognize that humanity and go, oh, this is a person yeah. just like me. And that yeah. to me is a wonderful thing that a book can do is to encourage you to spend time with someone who you might not in real life mm-hmm. and feel safe with them on the page and come out of it going, oh, that person's very much like me. I like to leave somebody with an emotion. Yeah. Every book I write, you walk away feeling something and, and, and understanding that there's a message from everything that I write. And I love that, that you do that as well mm-hmm. and that you share that with everybody. And you do so well. Thank you. Thank so you. I, I, <laughs> honestly, it's, it's such an honor to have you here. I am getting tangled over my own words. <laughs> um, so... Moving into the book portion of the podcast, what is the book that you've read most recently that stuck with you the most? A a book that I've read of of others? Yeah, that you've read, yeah, that stuck with you the most. Oh, you're going to be surprised. (laughs) You're going to be surprised when I say this. I just finished reading. No, not at all. uh, I just finished reading Randy Rainbow's uh, uh, autobiography memoir right. or whatever 
And uh, it it was funny, of course, because he's funny. But it yeah. was also much more emotionally honest than I would than I was expecting. Um, I actually read a lot of nonfiction. I think right. the reason I read as much nonfiction as I do is because reading other people's fiction is, first of all, I can't do it the way I used to. I can't right. do it like just like a reader without imposing yeah. any, accidentally imposing any sense of reading it the way I would read my own work and kind of judging if it went where I thought it should go. So I read a lot of nonfiction that's kind of narrative and tells a good story. And the fact that I can't think of any I've read recently as really standing out beyond the Randy Rainbow book kind of probably shows that I've been reading some nonfiction that <laughs> didn't leave a deep impression. Um, the ones that I've read in the last year or two that I really loved, nonfiction books, but they, they read like good stories. Um, two by Elizabeth Letts, both horse-related. Um, one of them mm -hmm. was The Perfect Horse, which is about the people who helped the Lipizzaner stallions survive World War II and being seized by the Nazis. Um, yeah. That was an amazing book. And she also wrote uh, The $80 Champion, which is about that horse that was uh, bought off a kill wagon. And he ended up being mm -hmm. the champion jumper in the entire country two years in a row, beating all these three million sure, dollar sure, horses imported from Europe and stuff like that. It was just a very, a very uh, fun kind of upbeat story. I also read a very good um, nonfiction book, and I don't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's called Just Mercy. And it's about a, a nonprofit group of attorneys who um, help people who have been um, probably wrongly convicted, yeah. um, generally because of racial issues mm -hmm. where their cases were just handled very badly and they needed, you know, they couldn't afford the attorneys that more moneyed people can afford to kind of really sort out their case and and keep them out of prison. That was a very good one too. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a better cross section of, of what I like no, to read. No, it does. It definitely does. I yeah. will read fiction occasionally, but it's hard for me because I tend to read it like an author instead of like a reader. So I have that problem too. Sometimes I get tangled I up sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I have to almost just remind myself that I'm a reader too. And, 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 you know, they need the love that I can give them, um, that they're giving me through their books. So, you know, I, I try and keep that in mind when I'm sitting down and reading. What author do you wish that if you had the chance to sit down and just talk with anyone past, present, that, you know, even once they've passed on, if you could sit with anyone for any length of time, and speak with them, who would it be and why? Probably Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. Um, I was a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut when I was a teenager, when I was growing up. I think he, he influenced, uh, he influenced what I write because he was so wonderfully quirky 
And yet at the same time, I got the sense that he was not only fascinated by the human condition, but fascinated by the universe. That he was curious about, about so much that's just beyond our little day-to-day human experience. And I just think he had a fascinating way of looking at the world. Yeah. He also wasn't afraid of the emotional aspect of of being human. And I just think he would be a, just a wonderful person to sit down and have a conversation with. I would love to pick his brain. Unfortunately, he's no longer here, but, um, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's good because it's, you know, it's an insight that the the readers and the listeners can, can pick up on and say, wow, well, maybe I'll go take a look at their writing now and I'll, you know, it keeps their, their legacy alive and their, their, yeah. their messages alive. What author would you say inspired you to read and who inspired you to write and got you really excited about books in the first place? Who would you who would you give the uh, A made you excited about reading and then B who made you excited about writing? Well, <clears throat> I got excited about reading when I was actually a, a kid. as opposed to like a teenager and then I used to read books like you know the Nancy Drew mysteries and the Black Stallion and stuff like that so that got me excited about reading then I then I went to school and Mm -hmm. lost my love of reading for quite some time because I felt like the books that teachers were pushing at me to read I couldn't connect with them. They didn't have anything to say to me. Um, I I tend to like more modern books. I like faster moving fiction. I don't really like things that were written centuries ago. I don't really like things that are supposed to be good for me. Um, And so I started thinking of reading as homework. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I had a very, very, very good English and creative writing teacher. His name was Lenny Horowitz, and he was only... He was only 10 years older than we were. We were 14 and he was 24. And he's the one who reignited my love of reading. So some of the things that he gave us to read, I remember uh, Bless the Beasts and Children uh, was one of the books he assigned. And that, that really, I really connected with that on an emotional level. I also remember that he had us read the plays, uh, 12 Angry Men and a Raisin in the Sun. All right. And those really kind of lit me up in very different ways. Yeah. Um, and um, probably, I don't think he specifically assigned this, but I think probably the one book that had, well, maybe two books that had the greatest effect on where I would eventually go with my own writing are, um, uh, the John Steinbeck book. Um, why can't I think of the name of the John Steinbeck book with Lenny and. I always and, think of the title and forget the author. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yeah, no. I'm, uh, with, I'm um, with you there. Of Mice and Man. And oh, okay. uh, because, because it was that those down and out characters, those people who were kind of from the other side of the tracks that you probably wouldn't really dare hang around in in real life and yet they were so human and so 
compelling. Yeah. And then possibly my favorite book of all time um, from when I was young and kind of developing my uh, taste in literature would be Flowers for Algernon. Oh, okay. That was that was a very formative read for me because it it kind of helped me understand what I felt compelling, found compelling as a reader, yeah. and what I was going to want to write. So, I guess the next question will be: If you could go back in time. Where would what time would it be, and would you go back as a writer so that you could observe and and write uh, stories about that time period? You know, I can't, I can't really connect to wanting to go back in time. Right. Um, I know when I went back fictionally, um. And mostly when I when I do historical fiction, it's within my own lifetime. The only time I've, that I can think of off the top of my head that I've gone back beyond my own lifetime to write a book is the last release before Dreaming of Flight, Boy Underground, which was set at the beginning of World War II in 19... Well, it actually follows through the war, but... Uh, starting yeah. in late 1941 and going through the end of the war. Uh, it's a very compelling time because I was writing, among other things, about Japanese internment, oh, which right. okay. I think is a, a, an important subject. It's one that we would like to forget, and I think we, we mustn't. No, we mustn't. Because I think when you – I think it's it, – it was not as dreadful as the Holocaust – but it was similar to the Holocaust in that <clears throat> if you don't remember it, you're condemning yourself to repeat it. Yep. But I, so it's a very compelling time in our history, but I don't really want to go back there because I think it was an awful time too. Yeah. Like it was just a yeah. very, very hard time to be alive. And I am half Jewish, by the way, I'm Jewish on my father's side. So if I had been there, if I'd been in the U.S., I'd probably be fine. If I yep. had been there in Europe, I would probably be dead. Yeah, that's very so, true. That um, is very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. Has there ever been a book that you've picked up and you thought, what on earth is this? What was I thinking picking up this novel to read? Um, I don't know if I think if if there are other people's books, right? I don't know if yes. I sometimes think what on earth was I thinking picking it up, but I know I pick up a lot of books and I put them down because life is too short and there are yes. too many books and too little time. And yep. I have a really strong sense. I have a little bit of trouble with my attention span. I'm kind right. of undiagnosed ADD, and ah, yeah, I, I know that feeling. think that, and I think this about my own work as well. As an author, I think it is my job to make my book interesting so the reader is drawn yep. through it. Now, obviously, this is not going to work for every reader. It's going to work for readers who like to read what I like to write. Yeah, but, of course, um, yeah. So, But I feel like, it's not somebody's job to nail their attention to my book because they started it. It's my yeah. job to hold their attention. 
So if an author is not holding my attention, I will very quickly put the book down because I will never read all the books I want to read in my lifetime. I couldn't possibly. So why would I take time on something that isn't uh, drawing me into it? Yeah, of course. So I think no, it's I not so much of a sense of what was I thinking. It's more of a sense of, no, this just I isn't don't have time enough. for this. It yeah. just isn't doing it for me enough that I would choose to finish it. So I have a yeah. lot of DNFs in my reading file. Um, and that's okay. Cause, yeah, um, it is. It's more than okay. Some people when it can't comes... do that. They feel like they have to finish yeah. I don't feel like I have to finish. I can understand that. And I can, I can see that. Um, I've had DNFs on my stuff and it can be a bit tough, but I understand it's not their cup of tea and that's okay. Exactly. exactly. That's why yeah. I say, when I say I try to make the book compelling, I can't make it compelling for everyone. There is no such thing. I can yeah, just make it a good book for people who like to read what I like to write. That's all any exactly. author can do. Yeah, exactly. So moving into your writing portion of your life, this is a this is the fun thing for all the new writers out there that are listening to the show. How did you go about creating the darker elements in your story, the darker kind of threatening elements in in there that really keeps their their nose to the page and turning the pages? Um. Well, partly being a student of human nature and partly having come from a fairly tough background myself. Yeah. Um, I, I got mean, that I, from your stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I came from a troubled family. I uh, uh, I no longer do, but I ha- up until about 33 years ago, I had a lot of problem with addiction. Um, I yeah. was... You know, I didn't have money. I was living in bad neighborhoods. I was going in a lot of very bad direction. Uh, relationships were always a mess. Uh, and yeah. so it's not really that hard to draw on the the darker side of human nature. I'm not living there now, but I, I sure as hell remember it. Yeah. You don't ever really forget into, that yeah. stuff. But no, one don't. of the nice things about being an author is, you know, not, none of your life experiences are a waste. Exactly. Ex- you know, exactly. But, and you can yeah. tap into some elements of that. And it's it's almost for us like a therapy session. It kind of helps yeah. ease the sting of yeah. some of it and helps us understand it better. Sure. it kind of It kind of brings things up to be healed. And hopefully it will yeah. do that for some readers as well. Yeah, readers who maybe can't write it themselves. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good point. What inspired you to pick the type of genre writing that you did? Like, what drew you to this genre above all, all the others? Um, I don't know if I'm picking it as much as it's picking me. I think I've just right. been trying. I think... Over the course of 25 years, I've been trying to find where my work best belongs. And I just started out writing just kind of mainstream adult fiction. And then somebody pointed out to me that the coming-of-age characters in my books were usually the strongest characters. Um, I, I I was having trouble 
after pay it forward, I was having trouble because um, I felt like I was getting dismissed a lot for being quote corny end quote like a cynical person yeah. was kind of making fun of what I was doing. And I, I remember talking to a woman in a bookstore. We were talking about young adult literature and she used yeah. the phrase, one of the things she liked about young adult fiction, she used the phrase, the freedom to be sincere. And I think that's yeah. why I turned for several years to young adult fiction. I have, uh, I had five that I put out through Knopf books for young readers what I yes. eventually found out was that the they were more popular with the school librarians than they were with the students, and that's a generalization. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and yeah, I've so, seen that myself. and so I kind of evolved from writing young adult fiction to writing what's called coming of age fiction, and it right. was just going after my own strengths. So, in in coming of age fiction, you have the young character but you don't necessarily intend the book for the young character. Yep. It's more a book for adults about those coming of age emotions. And so I think, I think it was not so much choosing a genre as just kind of trying to follow my strengths as a writer to what was going to resonate the most. And I very solidly landed in, in coming of age fiction. I mean, that does seem to be what I do. It just like a That's lot good. of people, it just took me a while yeah. to figure out what I do. And I think that's amazing. It's your groove and it's, it's, it's who you are. It's part of who you are. And I think that's, yeah. that's very amazing for the writers out there to hear. Is there a book, like, see, when you're putting your books together, is it more like a movie in your head or is it a jigsaw puzzle that you're trying to, piece together like how do you visualize it as you're writing it definitely not like a jigsaw puzzle i'm not um i'm not working between this year and this year and trying to figure out how things all fit together it's not exactly like a movie because it's almost it's almost more like a character comes to me and has a story and as i start imagining the details of this story it feels almost more like I'm discovering what happened instead of making up what happened. All right. Okay. If I'm doing so it's it like right. a sit down interview kind of style. If I'm doing it right, there's more of a sense like, oh, that's what happened to you. Or, oh, that's what you're going to do next. But given those two choices you gave me, it's probably closer to a movie. I mean, the whole thing is just kind of almost like a daydream in my head. Which is funny. Oh, I know because, that feeling. I do. I do yeah, know that well, feeling. It's it's kind of amusing because when I was a kid, I was a daydreamer. And I had teachers who told me I'd never make anything of myself if I didn't get my head out of the clouds. And I just think it's hilarious how wrong they were. Because now I, I had that a very same good thing. living yeah. daydreaming. A very good living. And I have, I have hundreds of thousands of people who want to share my daydreams with me. And so it just goes to show that you got to be careful what you tell a kid. I mean, exactly. you think it's good advice, but um, I'm sure they would have been much happier if I decided to become an accountant or something and 
gotten serious yeah. about my math, but it wasn't, that's not how it was destined to go. I mean, I, I know that feeling well. I was dyslexic. They didn't understand dyslexia. They didn't understand how to help me. And I was made to feel like I would be nothing more than a housewife. I got told I would never be anything, you know, between the condition and the interrupted education and the lack of knowledge for them and a lack of knowledge on how to support and help me. They didn't give me a very good, hopeful start. Mm. And I was a very bitter and very angry teenager because I felt let down and let down by the people that were supposed to help me and teach me. And there was this one teacher and he really did believe in me and he had a drinking problem, but he was a really amazing guy and he kept me going all through high school. He kept checking in with me and saying, you can do this. You can be whoever you want to be, Crystal. Just you keep going. Just you keep fighting. And that's maybe why I'm a writer now, because he always believed in me and he never, never thought that the dyslexia or the arthritis would hold me back. But I, you know, I nearly did become that, that prophecy that they, they wanted to tell me. I nearly did give up and just be working a dead end job and trying to be a wife and trying to act this perfectly normal person that I, I just, I just wasn't. Well, it's easy. Uh, it's actually, unfortunately, easy to believe people when they tell you about your limitations. Yeah. Especially if more than one person is telling you. It's it's awfully easy to internalize. You know, I think we do a lot of damage to kids by telling them what their limitations are. Yeah. And it, it really did. It, it made me very self-conscious, even now, like, getting back into... The publishing world I'm extremely nervous I'm an extremely more frightened than I've ever been before I ever published and I think it's because I I want to give the best that I can to the industry I want to make money writing because that's what makes me happy and I don't want my hobby just to see it as a, a hobby because I can't sell a book or I can't make money in that field so yeah, I, I think I think limitations always come back to bite me and but it also drives me and it also makes me a bit of a bulldozer and I I keep going for that reason because I almost want to prove them wrong and I want to be better than they think that I can be. Yeah. Is there a character that you wish you could have written more about from like your other books oh. or I did end up writing about uh, Chloe and Jordy from Becoming Chloe more than once. It's the only time I've ever done that. Right. Um, <clears throat> generally speaking, no, even though there are a lot of characters who I particularly love. But right. I think my sense is always, I I told you about the not the best part of their lives because – you're never writing about the happiest part of somebody's life. No. Because when somebody is in a happy part of their life, that's not really the compelling story. It's no. the it's the overcoming difficulties that's the compelling story. Um, it's the drama. It's the, it's the pain. It's the So I think I have yeah. a sense that I've told you 
the most important part of their story. So even though it may be a very favorite character of mine, I don't really want to go back and write more about them. I know sometimes it sounds strange when I say it, but I like to think when I'm done with the character, fictionally speaking, that their lives will go on to be happy, which is an uninteresting thing to read about. It's it's wonderful Mm -hmm. to be happy. It's not very very interesting to read about someone being happy. There's no real story there. And so I find myself not wanting to hold these characters' feet to the fire a second time, you know, Mm, to to send them down into this world where they have this massive obstacle to overcome. So, and also I'm always very uh, anxious to move on to the next set of characters. Yeah. Yeah. So however much I love them, I feel like I've written enough about them. Has there ever been a character that you've written that's lingered, that's never really wanted to go away, that's kind of hung around for a long time after you uh, finished writing them? Yes and no. Um, I, I don't, I, I actually think at this point, writing two books a year, that that's kind of a luxury yeah. I can't afford. I mean, right. again, there's okay. characters that I have a heart connection with and that I yeah. particularly like or particularly enjoyed writing. But when you're writing two books yeah. a year, I don't think you really have the luxury of having a character hang around when it's time to move on to the next ones. And I think I've learned a bit of discipline about that. Where I finish That's a really book, good because I think a lot I of us struggle away. with that. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of us writers struggle with that one, you know, because we fall in love with these characters and then we don't want to say goodbye. And yeah. we don't want to let them move on with their lives. And we don't want them to to go because, you know, selfishly we love them and we want to hang on to them. So that that was a, a really great answer as far as I'm concerned because I think it's you're showing us something different and something that we can all kind of understand and we can connect into because some authors have to have that level of dedication and level of determination and then others you know that they do want to hold on to them yeah what was the process uh like for you when you had your book transfer from being just a book into into a film oh it was horrifying it was really pretty was it yeah you didn't enjoy it at all um i enjoyed the fact that i was being adapted to film And I'm still glad I was. There's a lot of name recognition that goes with that. It brings you more readers. It uh, makes uh, publishers take you more seriously. But the process itself was horrifying. But I I also, I think I took a fairly healthy attitude toward it. I was not a child. I was in my 40s, I think. And I just decided early on that, that... my book is not their movie and vice versa. And yeah, that's you know, really good really. I needed to yeah. just separate from it. Um, there was a wonderful quote that somebody sent me from while this is all going on from Jacqueline Michard, who I know a little yep. bit now. I haven't met her in person, but, uh, but I know her. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, who, of course, she had the deep end of the ocean. Uh, that was an Oprah book, and it was uh, it was turned into a film. And uh, she said there was like a sidebar to an article with her, and she said, "Where I come from, you can either take the money or you can moan about the process, but not both." Exactly. And Very so true. I took that to heart, and I thought, well, okay. I, I'm going to take the money and I'm not going to moan about the process, but it was, you know, there, there were, uh, there was a lot going on on the set where even, even the screenwriter didn't really have control. No, Things were don't. being changed on the set on a daily basis. Uh, when the movie came out, the critics were just horrid to it. Just horrid. Yeah. They were very kind of, you know, cynical, cool. We don't, we don't watch movies about kindness. You know, and I remember yeah, when course. the when the movie first came out and it was getting all this. You know, uh, the screenwriter sent me this email that said, "Welcome to my world of horrifying media scrutiny." <laughs> and well, at least they were my... nice enough to write that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so since then, my goal has been to. Um, to be a success in terms of like having more people read and enjoy what I do, but yeah, not it's, being it's a staying away from Hollywood in, in a fame sort of way, because yeah. that is not real. It's not lasting. It's vulnerable. It's um, yeah. has a false quality to it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the whole thing was hard. Um, and again, I, I see what's good about it. Um, I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. You know, if I had it to do over again, I'd do it again. And this time I would be, you know, better prepared to deal with its negative aspects. Um, but it's, Hollywood is a very, very strange place. Place. Very different from staying home by yourself and conceiving a story all by yourself and making the reality just you. It's very different. What techniques as an author have you found helpful? And has there been any ones that you wish that you hadn't tried? You know, I don't, um, I have a little trouble relating to that question because I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think in terms of techniques. Right. I, I, it just kind of flows out of me the way it flows. And I, yeah. I don't really feel like I'm imposing any structure on it from the outside. I mean, other than, than trying to get the, the plotting of it, the way I, the way it feels right to me. So I don't think I've really yeah. written so much in techniques as just, kind of like dictating from the heart more of a thing, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But it's, it's when you say that, I I think of like how much you would adore Catherine Cookson because that was kind of her way of, she just wrote these stories that were working class people and she targeted topics that were problematic for social, you know, working class people and even poor people and, she she had an amazing mind and, it, and if you ever get a chance to still have a look at her work i really do recommend it okay. um 
and maybe you know you'll find you'll find a connection with her uh even though she's no longer with us i think you'll find a really deep connection with her i think you two would have gotten on very well together i'll give that a try yeah so moving into your life um and this is where we get to kind of be more human and the you know we're thinking less how do we sell our books to people and more just about being ourselves What's the first thing that you do when you need to de-stress from editing and writing and just to find that inner calm again? Um, Either take the dog for a walk. I live in a really beautiful place where you can walk by the ocean, you can walk in the forest, or both at the same time. I mean, in the forest, looking over the ocean. I like to get outside. I like to be outdoors at night under the stars. Um, or Sounds I will go beautiful. out and spend time with the horses. Yeah, I love. I would love to do that. Horses are in absolute peace always. Yeah, and it tends to be contagious. I mean, that's that's that was one of the things I loved about my upbringing was the the connection I had to horses and the way that me and it would connect, and it would just just be a loop between us, and I would know if he was going to be a little pain in my ass and throw me off and just be obstinate or he would be really loving and kind and take really good care of me while I was on board so I used to be able to tell just by looking at him and him looking at me where where we would be in that, that aspect they they communicate where they are very well and they know where we are much yeah. more than we realize yeah Much more than than a lot of people would be comfortable with if they did realize. Yes. (laughs) I've had my horse know things about me that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When I was, I I remember a time when I was, uh, we were doing a schooling show. Yeah. At the dressage barn where I used to, where I used to board him. And it was our second schooling show, and I had made up my mind that I was not going to be nervous because it was only a schooling show. You know, it, yeah. didn't, it doesn't count. I mean, the judge is, yeah, it's just like, okay, I'm not going to be nervous because it's only a schooling show. So I just kept that attitude all morning. I got in him, I got on him, I took him down into the arena to warm up. And immediately he started saying to me, like not saying in words, but he would be like, why are we nervous? Why are yep. we nervous? I'm like, damn it, I'm nervous. And I didn't yeah, realize it until he noticed it. He told you, yeah. He told yeah. me. Oh, is there is there like a reason why we're nervous? <laughs> you know. So I yeah, they're them. very uh they're very tuned in, which makes sense because you know, they're fear-based animals. They they have to run from danger. They don't fight their way through danger and here they are living with people who control their fate completely yeah but we don't share a common language and so it makes total sense that they would be extremely tuned in to what's going Mm -hmm. on with us at a non-verbal level exactly and i remember i was lucky enough to have a horse that I didn't own, but I was very close to him, and he was an Icelandic, and he was such a beautiful animal. And he, he had 
damage to his back quarters, so they couldn't put anybody heavy on him. And so I rode him, and he would come up to me in the middle, like I would go and shout on him, and he would come and he'd just put his head on my shoulder and nuzzle into me and as if to say, oh, I know your mom's here today and she's going to be a cow, you know. It, it was like he could understand that my what my anxiety was and what yeah. it was for. And he was very good at, like, calming me down. And if I was getting frustrated, he would jump over cones, you know, when we were trying to practice dressage or he would, you know, and I would go, ah, you know, and he was just he really taught me more about myself than anything and I miss him every single day and I had to give up horses to be with my partner because he lives in the city of Glasgow and but I miss it every day I'm and I I will probably never get to ride ever again because I, I had to have a surgery on my jaw to replace my jaw joints uh so I can eat and of course the pressure of the helmet is is so oh. so painful yeah. So I will never get to ride again. And and that that creates a really big hole in my chest because mm. I uh, I miss it. I miss it so much every day, every single day. Well, I uh I rode 5 days a week for about 6 years. I mean, it I've ridden at various times in my life, but this last time yeah. since I owned this horse. And uh now in the last year or so I've decided I that I'm not riding I'm retired from riding but I still love yeah. the horse and I still spend time with the horse every day and so it's not it's not a big loss because the connection with the horse is still there he doesn't yeah. care if I'm on his back or on the ground in front of him I think he'd rather yeah. look me in the eye to tell you the truth <laughs> probably yeah 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 it's amazing what they can do and it's amazing how they take care of us as well in their yeah. own way. What hobbies uh, do you enjoy and which ones do you wish you could explore more? Um, I like to hike. Um, I was a very big traveler. And since COVID, I am not. Yes. At all. So, you know, part of me kind of wishes that I could explore that more. And maybe there will come a time in my life when I will. My main hobby, and the reason why I'm so bleary-eyed this morning, is uh, astrophotography. I'm an amateur photographer, but I've expanded it into uh, actual deep sky astrophotos, where I've learned to take pictures of uh, nebulae, galaxies, star clusters yeah um and i have pictures on my website if anybody's interested in what that looks like it's yeah. a hobby that involves a lot of equipment it's it has a very steep learning curve it's mm-hmm. probably very good for my brain because they tell you as you get older you should learn new things holy cow you're true. always learning new things with astrophotography but yeah. i'm i'm absolutely compelled by it and fascinated by it because it allows me to see the absolute wonder of our universe, mm-hmm. which is which is endlessly awe-inspiring. And I'm a big it fan is. of it awe. Is. I think awe is, is extremely good for the spirit. And the more of it, it I can bring you're, into you're... my life, the happier I am. 
Yeah, and right. they can share the images with people, and then they feel that same sense of awe. So I get to bring awe into other right. people's lives too. So that's really my I love my that main hobby. Um, a couple of years ago, I was riding dressage, including doing some showing and doing astrophotography yeah. and writing two books a year. Um, so now I've kind of dropped out of the writing part without yeah. without having to lose the connection to the horses, which is nice. I also have a miniature nice, horse, yeah. which is kind of fun yeah. and, and funny and interesting. She's a little character. I got her. They, they uh, certainly are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, I got her because I wanted a pasture pal. Uh, for my big warm blood, he has another yep. full size horse there with him, but he's a thirty year old thoroughbred, which uh, means he's not going to be around as long as Soul is going to be around. And I wanted yep. him to have a younger companion <clears throat> who would be like the through line in his herd. So I have yep. Opal Moon, and oh, she is such a character! Oh my goodness, she is such a character. I can just imagine, actually. Yeah, they. I know. I know miniatures well. Yeah. What is the first thing that you do in the morning? It depends. It depends on whether the night, the previous night, was clear and moonless. If it was, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is look at the photos that were being taken while I slept. Because right. there's a certain amount of automation to the system that allows you to sleep. If yeah. the moon is out or it's been cloudy, the first thing I do, well, I, I feed the dog and let her out. And yeah. then I do some some floor stretches and a little bit of yoga to kind I of love yoga, yeah. so that my yeah. body is more flexible. And then I'll make myself a, 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 a hot beverage, coffee or tea. Yep, and settle down to put my email and social media and whatever, and uh, and then if it's a writing day, I'll write. I love that. That sounds so nice and amazing. It really does. What do you look forward to most every day? That's a good question. What do I look forward to most every day? Um, probably just unstructured time. I mean, there's a certain amount of time that I spend doing things that I know need doing, but then there's always a part of every day that that's just more, more inward directed. It can just be more, more in the moment, what I feel like doing in the moment. I think I look forward to having some unstructured time every day that I can spend yeah. in whatever way feels right. I also look forward to, you know, getting getting out or walking on the hills with the dogs and seeing the horses and things like that. I like that. Yeah, that is, that's really nice. What dream have you yet to achieve that you long to? You know, I have a couple of things. I have a couple of things left on my bucket list that I'm not doing right now because they involve going to far-flung places. And I'm not really going to get on a plane as long as uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. 
Yeah, it doesn't seem like I wanted like to go to Iceland and uh, see Atlantic puffins close up and take pictures of them. Oh, wow, yeah. And I that haven't is... done that yet. Other I than also... that, I, I have done so much of what I set out to do. If you ever yeah. go to my website and look, not under astrophotography, but under my photos, you'll yeah. see some travel photos there are some really lifeless stuff. You know, I hiked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. I went to Nepal and I trekked with a guide and a porter up to the Hotel Everest view to to see Mount yeah. Everest with my own eyes. I mean, the things that I dreamed of doing, I honestly did. Yeah. And wow. there's there's not... there. When I say there's not a whole bunch left, I don't mean that there aren't more things that would be wonderful to do. I mean, there's not much left in terms of regrets. Oh, I really wanted to do that, but I didn't. There isn't much left. I really got to the things that I wanted to get to. The fact that I'm not married, have no children, and have a job that is entirely flexible hours is, of course, very helpful in that regard. Mm-hmm. I understand that a lot of people have a lot more structure and a lot more obligation in their life, and um, and I don't say it flippantly, you know. No, no, of course not. Yeah. That That is, that's a really amazing answer. I, I really love that. So are you someone who likes to craft? And if not, what's the... What's your way of unlocking your creative juices, kind of like getting it going again? What's your other creative outlet, would you say? Well, I think photography is creative for me. Yeah, it is. I think I I do it creatively, and I I purposely photograph things that will inspire me. Yeah. But for the most part, when I when I want to be in a creative mode, especially with writing, I go in inward. I go in and find the story. Right, right. More than that's, I use something outward. Yeah, that's really, I feel like I do that as well. And I, it's nice to hear somebody else using something that, that I do, that I get told that I shouldn't do. So, yeah, it's really nice mm-hmm. to hear that. So I myself have a long-term illness that makes me slow down and appreciate the day. What makes you slow down and smell the roses? What's the thing that you would say makes you appreciate your day and, and everything that, you know, you get to do? Probably the animals. Yeah. I would say probably the animals because... The people that I see on a daily basis are also fairly caught up in being human. But animals are always in the moment. And if you take a minute to spend time with them, they will always bring you back to the moment. Yes, they do. That, That is such an amazing answer. I love that. What's your favorite place to curl up during the day? Is it like the garden? Do you have... A special reader's nook? Do you go to a cafe? Where do you go to just read and relax? Just exactly where I am now in my easy chair. Oh, okay. 
the like computer that. is is on a kind of a swinging lap desk in front of me. Yeah. Um, I can stream things. I can be on social media. I can read. Um, yeah. It's comfortable. Yeah. I'm kind of a homebody. I definitely wouldn't want to go to a cafe or a place like that. I I want to be in my own little cave. Yeah. And so this is kind no, of I my comfort that. zone right here, right where you see me now. So we're going into the final part of the show, and that's the word game, where we try okay. to connect words uh, to books or words to memories or words to just instant things that come to our mind. So are you ready to join our infamous word game? I'll give it a try. <laughs> that's all you can do. I'm afraid. Yeah. Your first word is chocolate. Mmm nervous <laughs> when i eat chocolate it 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 gives me sugar nerves yeah oh i know that that went very well what about caramel caramel yeah yeah same thing i uh i avoid sugar i i think the word stress ah that's a good one yeah what about butterfingers Butterfingers, I think clumsy. I heard the word butterfingers. <laughs> so do I, actually, clumsy, yeah. yeah. What about a good old custard cream? Mm, I go totally blank on that. It's. I always say it's good with a copper custard Can't even cream and a copper. What they taste? What that tastes like? Yeah. What about cheesecake? Oh, yum. I I actually don't uh, eat any dairy anymore, but I still remember oh. cheesecake very fondly, and the word yum comes up. I'll have to send you a famous Scottish cheesecake recipe. It's called the Orkney Cheesecake, and um, it, it's a fan favorite with anybody that's that's Norse, that's Nordic. Um. It just, I feel like it represents who we are as a people. So I will, I will send it to you and see what you think. I think okay. you can make it non-dairy. So, okay, good. You know, it, it'll be interesting. What about cookies? The word no comes up. <laughs> because of the fact that I avoid sugar and because of the fact that um, they're so compulsive. Yeah. Even if they yeah, were can and, you just and, eat one, yeah. And also I have to be gluten free. But even when I think of uh, gluten free cookies, I just think no. No, that you yeah, just won't no, like they don't taste like good, yeah. No, no, I get that. Yeah. What about cinnamon swirls? Ooh, the word cinnamon I have a very good take on. I would that's love actually to our next cinnamon word, yeah. tea or something. I realize that's not a word, I'm just giving you my reaction. No, no, your reaction is absolutely fine. Okay. That's exactly okay, what we want. Um, the next word is actually cinnamon. So you had cinnamon swirl and then you had cinnamon. Yes, yeah, spice. Spicy comes to mind. I like its spiciness. Mm. And your last word, but not least, coffee. Yes. <laughs> coffee is yes. I, I love the well, way it smells. I love to just smell oh, the grounds in the morning. Wonderful. Well, I know of a company, um, the, it's called John, Watts, John Watt and Son, 
they do this beautiful coffee, but they also actually created a coffee around a book of a British writer, a British crime writer. So I will send you them over so you can you can oh. enjoy them because it's a very good flavored coffee. It's very nice. It really kind of gets your senses going, I think. So I'll share that with you as well. Thank you. Be an honor to. Well, it's been such an honor to have you on the show, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And uh, please, you know, uh, this is this is the part where I say the door is open. So when your next book's ready to come out, or you've got another book that you want to release, then send me an email. We'll book you in, and uh, that we'll make great. sure you can have a chat with the, the listeners. So. Wheeler, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's well, thank it. you very much. Yeah, and thank you. And honestly, it's 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 been a dream talking to you. It's been absolutely lovely. Oh, thank so thank you. you so much. Thank you. Now you want me to just stay for a minute while it's loading? Yeah. And uh, guys, come back next week where we've got another author coming on to share their amazing stories with you and their thoughts and opinions. So you do not want to miss it because next week is truly got some inspiring people.